Luke chapter 6, verse 27 to 36. Let's give our attentive listening to the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and we ask that you would gift us faith to receive it now. Uh, We confess our weakness, uh, not only in hearing your word, but believing it and obeying it. And so, Lord, grant us genuine faith. Give us good hearts, good soils to receive your word so that your word would bear fruit in our lives. Help us to hear obediently. Help us to hear submittingly to your truth, knowing, Lord, uh, you intended for our good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been in this series called uh, In Pursuit of a Healthy Church, and uh, in the past five weeks, we looked at some of the principal and and structural foundations we need in order for the church to grow in in a healthy direction, right? We looked at how Jesus prays for the church. That's pretty essential. What it means to truly consider Jesus believe in him and we considered believers what does it mean to have genuine faith and how do you discern genuine faith versus what only appears genuine on the outside and we also looked at reasons why god gives the church the offices of the elders and the deacons as well so these um, principle and structural foundations as a pillar in the next five weeks what i want to share with us are uh, the, the other pillar that's very essential, and that is a relational and cultural pillar uh, that God uh, gives us in the scriptures. Uh, that's another very important pillar to have alongside the, the, the principle and the structural, and that is a relational and the cultural pillar. Um, what does it look like when Christians who belong to the church begin to grow relationally together and mature together into a God-honoring culture together? That's what we'll be looking at the next um, five weeks or so. And we're going to start today with this topic of what I want to call holistic generosity. I think this passage, if you were to kind of approach it generally and summarize it, I think you can summarize it in that phrase. This is about holistic generosity. Uh, And what I mean by that is 
that Jesus calls his disciples and his church to live by a generosity that goes far beyond giving away some of our money, giving away even a lot of our money, far beyond financial material generosity. It's generosity that pertains to all the different currencies that amount to something more precious than money that produces true health in the church that money can never produce. Are there rich churches that are unhealthy? Absolutely there are. Um, we don't want to discern the health of a church based on how much monetary support uh, they have because um, that's not how Jesus discerns the health of a church. Actually, what Jesus talks about here in Luke chapter 6 is not really giving a part of anything at all, but our whole lives and our whole hearts to our neighbors. He's talking about things that touch every part of our lives. And, and just to let you know, as I was sharing this during the first service, uh, every other line I shared um, in my internal thoughts, I was going, ouch, because uh, this is very invasive in a sense. It intrudes and, and interrupts and enters into every aspect of our lives. And that's what I mean by holistic um, generosity. He talks about our relationships, all of our social interactions, all of our friendships, and along with them, all the conflicts, arguments, tensions, and emotions that get tangled up in that territory. He presents all of that as a context for generosity. And that's the kind of holistic generosity that I believe will help us grow into a healthy, relationally and culturally healthy church. Let me outline this to you in a form of three questions, okay? Question number one, why holistic generosity? Okay, why does it matter to us? Question number two, what is our problem with holistic generosity? Why do we have, a, why do we have such a hard time with this? Third, what is God's answer to our problem with holistic generosity? Okay, so why holistic generosity? What is our problem with holistic generosity? What is God's answer to our problem of holistic generosity? Okay, so point number one, why? Why does this matter to us? Uh, verse 27 of our passage opens with the word but, and whenever you see that word, that's a clue to look at what just came before that so you know what's being contrasted, right? And when you, just to give you a summary, when you look before verse 27, what you find there are actually a series of woes or judgments by Jesus. Woes or judgments that Jesus pronounces on the rich who console only themselves to those who are full on their own but leave others hungry three uh, those who laugh while others are mourning jesus says woe to such people and then starting in verse 27 he says but i say to you who hear right and that's referring to the sheep who hear the shepherd's voice this is, that's referring to the church i say to you who hear love your enemies do good to those who hate you Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Okay. So do you see the, the contrast here? Unlike those who keep all their money, unlike those who hold on to their food, unlike those who 
keep to their emotions and feel only what they feel. You, my followers, don't keep or hold to anything, but give. Give them your love, give them your goodness, give them your blessings, give them your prayers. Give, give, and give. Okay. It's not giving something, is it? It's, it's giving yourself wholly, totally to your neighbors. Uh, and that is because we are his church, and this is how God wants his people to steward all that he has given us, including our relationships, our feelings in those relationships, all the decisions we make in those contexts. All of that belongs to him, and therefore we have to steward them well if we are his people. And that's the first thing to understand about holistic generosity. It's that we are stewards of all that God has entrusted to us, uh, not owners. Our money is not our money. Our body is not our body. Our mind, our feelings, our soul, they're his. We don't own them. We steward them. And God's will for us is to be generous with it all, to give and give and give. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And he says in 1 Timothy 6, we brought nothing into the world. We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. Everything we have, therefore, are, are his. So glorify him with everything you got. Everything that you are. So the, the first part to, to answering that question, the first part of the answer, why holistic generosity? It's not because it's nice. It's, it's polite or it's, it's Christian etiquette. It's a moral obligation to do with God's stuff what God wants to be done. There's a quote, I forgot where I heard it, and it says the same thing, but more in this um, tough love kind of way. So I'm going to just quote it. I'm just going to read the quote so it's coming from someone else and, and not myself. Quote, if you're a steward and none of it is really yours, your body, your, your mind, your feelings, your possessions, none of it is really yours, and God calls you to be radically generous, but you're not, that is not just stinginess, that is robbery. That is not just miserliness, it is thievery. Not just a lack of compassion, but a lack of integrity. You're not just being stingy, you're, you're robbing God of what is his and his right to do what he wishes with what is his. And he's right. Uh, Jesus doesn't merely lord over our money, does he? Right? He lords over our relationships. He lords over how we interact in those relationships, how we interact with family members and co-workers and friends and boyfriends and girlfriends. He lords over all of those things. Why? Why does he get to do that? Well, for one, you call him that. You call him Lord. So if you do call him Lord and you do acknowledge him as Lord, then, then, then he ought to lord over it all. And secondly, that's who he is. King of kings, 
Lord of lords. From him, through him, to him are all things. And we're just stewards of some of those things that belong to him. And as stewards, we, we don't get to say to God, you can, you can touch this stuff over here, but you cannot touch this. Because that's operating like an owner. I mean, I think 90% of my children's arguments are over possessions. That's mine. Don't touch, right? Um, and and you, you do have to teach them to respect their boundaries, right? Respect people's properties, but also share, right? You do, you do both of that. But what's the, in, what's the presupposition there, right? It's mine, therefore, done touch, right? And, and they're entitled to that to some extent. But we do that with God, don't we? Let's say you, let's say you tithe regularly to the church and you, you give generously to charities or to missionaries. But if you were at the same time unwilling to reconcile with a brother or sister, unwilling to carry a forgiving heart towards someone who's wronged you or offended you, that would be like saying to God, God, you can touch my bank account my financial currency, but you cannot touch my emotional account. You cannot touch my relational account. You cannot drain me of that. Uh, because that's mine. That, would, that wouldn't be a steward's heart. That would be an owner's uh, attitude. Actually, if you look at Luke chapter 20, that's the attitude of the wicked tenants who, who kicked out the owner and claimed possession over what was rightfully the owner of the vineyard. We are stewards, and stewards must do with what is their Lord's according to the Lord's will. And here he tells us, with everything that you are, everything that I've equipped you with and I've given you, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, give, love, do good, pray, even for your enemies, be holistically generous. And then Jesus adds this helpful metaphor in verse 29, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. What does that imply? It implies we are not to settle the score. Uh, you got struck, strike back. Your cloak got taken, Take theirs too. Uh, don't go out to settle scores like that with your enemy as if you are the ones they robbed. As if you are the ones who are ultimately wronged. If anything, it's God that they're offending and robbing. It's all his. And he has the right to say, give it all away. And we have the obligation to, to do with his things as he wishes. Ultimately, then, why are we to be holistically generous? Because the simple answer is, we are holistically his. And he calls us to be generous with all that we are. And we're not to simply think, God, okay, God can touch my money and maybe my time, how I go about my work, how I speak or not speak, and what I do and refrain from doing, it wouldn't be holistic enough if we don't infuse into our understanding of generosity all the other currencies uh, we have in life. 
whether that's relational or emotional or mental or physical or temporal, um, our rightful moral obligation to God is to use it all, all of it, for the glory of God. And what glorifies him is generosity. Give. That's what he calls us to. And I believe that's what he's calling the church to as well. To those who hear, do this. And that naturally leads us to the second question. Why do we have such a problem with this? What is the problem we have with being holistically generous and giving our our lives away, our heart, soul, mind, and strength being expended for others? I think here's one summary of the problem by an author uh, named Bob Goff. He said, quote, very simply, love's asking price is everything. Love's asking price is everything. And there it is. I think that's the problem in the nutshell. We want to keep everything. We want to hold on to everything. When love asks us to, to give it all away, our natural instinct is antithetical to love, opposite of love. The world amplifies that as well, right? Keep everything. You're entitled. Hold on to it all. Jesus says, no, love and give. Don't hold anything back. Uh, The enemy even says, right, you must settle the score. Take vengeance into your own hands. Jesus says, keep no record of wrongs. What? What's more instinctive to our nature? What, are, what does our heart harmonize more with, the, the world and the enemy or, or the words of Christ? And if you're like me, it will be the world and the enemy every time. Here's a, here's a simple example of how the world, I think, amplifies this for me. Um, I think one of the truisms of our culture right now may be, uh, you are your harshest critic. I don't know if you heard that. I've, I've heard that. And... I think there's absolutely truth to that. Absolute truth to that. But like all truisms, there's also falsehood in that. When I am confronted by someone, for example, my immediate reaction is to come to my own defense. I, I, I bring up my inner lawyer to, to plead my innocence. Uh, to give an explanation for why I did the things I did and said the things I said. Uh, I'm not my harshest critic then. I'm my best defender. I want to be understood. I want to be heard. I want, I want this person confronting me to understand I was, I'm more complicated than what they make, make me out to be. I'm, I'm, I'm in a complex situation. You, you need more data from me to understand my position. That's me when I'm confronted. And there's this deep distrust as well in the other person that adds to my defensiveness. And probably along with that, a distrust in God. Um, I'm on my own here. I must vindicate myself um, and fend for myself because, you know, uh, God's kind of dropping the ball here and vindicating me. He's, he's, he's not seeing, he's not hearing, he's not here. So I must save me, right? And so I get defensive in front of my confronter. I don't give an inch. It's the same kind of distrust and unbelief and strife we see in Genesis 3, isn't it? 
the root problem of our ungenerous way of life, self-absorbed way of life, self-defensive way of life, um, is the same as the sin of our, our first parents in the garden. Um, that, that ancient sin right, that dwells in us all. And the same competing voices that were in the garden, we, we hear today. Uh, one voice saying, hold on to what's yours, don't give an inch, live your truth. Uh, God, is, God is holding things back from you. Uh, he's not trustworthy. And, and that's what's echoing in our, our sinful nature. And Jesus is here telling us, you have everything you need in me, so love and give and do good and bless even, even your enemies. And as you wish to have done unto you, do so to them. Which means, if I were to apply that to my example earlier, my cultural example would be, rather than bringing up my inner lawyer to defend myself, Jesus, what Jesus would have me do is send that lawyer over to the other side and to defend their case. That's what he would want me to do. He would, he would want me to understand the other person as more complex individuals and listen to them, understand them, prioritize their being understood than, than me being understood. Give ear to them. Listen to their cause. And if they're weeping, weep, weep with them. If they're rejoicing, rejoice with them. He would ask me to be generous with, with my emotions, generous in my, in my relationships. But that's just not me. That is not my nature. And I wonder if, you come, if you've come to grips with that as well for yourself, that this is not your nature either that your nature my nature like the world they are all diametrically opposed to god and that makes you and me uh, god's enemies because we oppose him and his will and when we hate the even the thought of forgiving our offender we're not just hating them we hate the one who commands us to love them. To truly come to grips with our problem with holistic generosity, you have to come to grips with how anti-God we are by nature. The problem is us. The problem is me. My hatred of God's ways and his nature. It's also in our world. It's also what the enemy intrusively speaks into our lives. But that's our, that's our fundamental problem with holistic generosity. Although we were created in God's image to reflect his nature, corrupted, broken by sin, we reflect the opposite. So, then... <laughs> What is God's answer to this problem that we have with holistic generosity? What's God's answer to this problem? Our problem of deep distrust of, of God and therefore our neighbors. And the, the, the existential stinginess that gets born out of that. The answer is God gives us the gospel. He gives us the gospel of Jesus Christ and it is this, that while we were still ungenerous, while we were yet anti-God, 
while we were still distrusting him and, and his ways and therefore our neighbors, while we were only keeping and hoarding and taking, Jesus Christ came to give and give and give to people who know nothing but taking. He came to give. And he came to give holistically. He came to give generously himself. That is how he chooses to save sinners from their, their ungodlike ungodly nature and world to, to show them the victory he, he wins over sin show us his generous way of life and show us that by his power that beautiful life of generosity is not only possible it's promised to us it's gifted to us for those who put our trust in him and he restores our trust in our God who, who does provide who does vindicate who is present with us, who will reward. And, and those who believe this, therefore, that they've been saved by this generous God and, and redeemed into his generous world, uh, we can imitate God's holistic generosity even in this, in this very ungenerous world. He gives us the power to live as Jesus did. In fact, this is how Jesus builds it up in, in this passage, starting from verse 32 and on. Notice this contrast. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And that's referring to people in the world who do not know God. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But... As for you, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, therefore, even as your Father is merciful. Do you see that? The, the point is not a, a be, be good for goodness sake, be generous for generosity's sake. Oh, think of all those poor souls who need your generosity. That's not the motive here. Think on God and his mercy to you. Think on his generosity to you who opposed him, who hated him and his ways. Think of his Adoption of you into his family. Think on that and therefore live generously. Think on his marvelous gift of grace that we could never, never earn and never keep on our own. Uh, like we sing in that hymn, what gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. Uh, the, the old English preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's kind of a hero of mine, he, he once said this. I think he said this in a sermon and I was just so moved by it, I had to uh, uh, type it down. Uh, he once said, quote, do you know what your adoption into God's family means? I mean, do you really know what it means? It means this. It is the highest expression even of God's love. 
And then he adds, I speak carefully, I speak with reverence. And when he says, I speak carefully, I speak with reverence, he means, I'm about to say something that might sound heretical at first, but it's not, so don't worry. Hear me out, that's kind of what he's saying. I speak carefully, I speak with reverence, that even the love of Almighty God can do no more for us than this, to make us his children. Even the omnipotent power of God cannot do any more than this. His generosity has gone to the limits of his omnipotence to make us his eternal sons and daughters. Consider that mercy of God. In that mercy of God that forgives us and adopts us into his kingdom forever, what we have is the highest expression of God's generosity to us. And for those of us who believe that, those of us who are overwhelmed by that, will overflow into generosity. And we will likewise go as far as we can possibly go to love and to give. Because that's what God did for us. He went as far as he possibly could in his generosity towards us. And this means even now, this to the extent that we believe that and we worship God in that, we can overflow into generosity to our neighbors. And you can say to others, because you're sons and daughters of the Most High, those who are indebted to you, those who trespass against you constantly, whether that's relationally or emotionally or mentally, materially, physically, you can say to them, I'm, I'm choosing to give you all the all the patience, all the graciousness, all the forgiveness, all the compassion I've received from my Savior who saved me. Who, who saved me despite the fact that I was the one who struck him on, on the cheek. I was the one who stripped him naked of his clothes. I was the one who nailed him to the cross and yet he has loved me. He's befriended me. He's blessed me. And in this very moment, he is praying for me. Therefore, I will befriend you. That is what we get to say as forgiven and adopted children of the Most High. If we know God's answer to our problem, which is the gospel of grace and the good news of his adoption into his family. And, and now everything we do and say, we can do and say because we want to please our Heavenly Father. Even the necessary boundaries we draw with people, right? Because this is not to say you should throw out all boundaries. What this does is as you draw those necessary healthy boundaries, you draw them God's way. You draw them where God wants you to draw them, not where you would like to draw them. And, and you draw it as widely <laughs> as he would have you draw them not as narrowly as you would like those lines to be drawn. And you draw them as lovingly, as compassionately, as generously as he would have you. And just as he did, uh, the main point of drawing boundaries is to, is to safely invite someone in, not to keep someone out. So that's why we 
should have our boundaries too. Not to always keep people out, but to safely invite them in. It changes the way we even draw boundaries. Now, does all this sound incredibly difficult to you? Yeah. Wrong. It's impossible. If you think this is difficult, there's still a part of you that's going, I could kind of do this, maybe for a week. And I'm telling you, it's not difficult. This is impossible. Apart from the grace of God, and his Holy Spirit living inside of us, giving us a power we simply do not have on our own. Apart from the grace of God and his Holy Spirit living inside us, this is not difficult, it's impossible. If I were to tell you here from this pulpit, just go and just will yourself to do this, that wouldn't be the gospel, it would be the anti-gospel and you should never come back to this church. The gospel is Jesus Christ, through his forgiving and overcoming of all our sins on the cross, he alone has the power to overcome our weaknesses and his spirit living inside us can help us live in his reality in the here and now. Gradually, more and more, one degree to the next. William Temple, the... um, the British theologian from the 1800s has this wonderful quote that I I, I love and I want to share with you because it's very relevant to this. He said, it's no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. And it is no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and telling me live a life like that. Jesus could do it. I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could somehow come and live in me, then I could play, write plays like, like his. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I could live a life like his. Guys, I hope you say this to yourself regularly as, as I was try to do more. Say to yourself often, I can't. I can't but by the Spirit of God, I will. With me, this is impossible. It's impossible for me to love this person, to draw close to this person, to reconcile, to seek reconciliation with this person, to begin to utter prayers for this person. It is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. If we continue to rely on the grace of the Holy Spirit as we vow in our, in our membership, humbly relying upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, then we will right, endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ. But only through that humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit. And if you begin to catch glimpses, guys, if you, if you begin to see even glimpses of people empowered by the Holy Spirit, loving those who are challenging to love, right? loving difficult people in difficult seasons, 
you are, t- you are catching glimpses of a very healthy, God-honoring church. Let that be your sign. Uh, let that be the mark. We don't need externally extravagant things. We have all the extravagance we need in the mercy of God. And what we want to do is to let that overflow in our relationships and begin to smell a bit more like that to others, for others to catch that fragrance of God's mercy when they interact with us. Again, gradually, one degree to the next. And as we come to the table, what I want us to be reminded of is, once again, that holistic generosity that Christ presented to us on the cross, him holding nothing back and giving absolutely everything he could give to us on the cross. And here we celebrate that, here we remember that, and here we, we're reminded of the promise of that amazing feast that is waiting for us, that, that generous feast that he's, he's, he's prepared for us once he brings his new heavens and new earth. But for now, we remember in pieces, in small elements, how to display the generosity of Christ, even in the here and now. With that in mind, we'll pray and go into the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, may we be those that truly hear you. Hear you call us to first receive your mercy and your adoption. To receive and to be overwhelmed by the great mercy of our God. And just help us to rest there for a while. To receive that for a while. To celebrate that for a while. Until God, that does overflow from our hearts into our hands, our feet, into our relationships, into our conversations, into even our relationship with with our enemies. God, be merciful to us and pour more and more of your daily new mercies upon us. And by the help of your Holy Spirit, may we do the impossible. By the help of your Holy Spirit, may we do the, the supernatural. To give and to give and to give some more. And help us to, Lord, taste and see the generosity of God once again as we come to your table. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.